from today's gospel. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The three great traditional disciplines of Lent are fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Now, last Sunday we spoke about fasting and why it's important. It's an important discipline for us to take up, even if only to a small degree. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go and you can listen to the sermon on our website, or we do have a podcast feed if you know how to access that, to just learn more about fasting. And it's not too late, even though we're a week and a half into Lent. It's, you can always start now. Now, almsgiving, though not directly addressed in any of the assigned Lenten readings, is assumed in many passages, particularly the epistles we read, um, because and that we have read, we'll continue to read, about love and charity for one's neighbor. One of the primary ways we can serve our fellow humans is by sharing with them the abundance of God's blessings in our lives. Not only this, but almsgiving is a spiritual activity that helps us, those who give, we learn to attach ourselves to God and let go of that all-too-common idol, money. This is why each Lent, as we were just talking about, the bishop gives us a Lenten appeal, a cause he believes is worthy of our treasures and prayer. So I just want to doubly encourage you during this Lenten season to dig deep into those pockets. As I heard one person say, it's really not almsgiving until you give to the point of it hurting a little bit, meaning you've got to give up something in your life in order to give that money. Maybe it's, hey, I don't, I don't eat lunch today, and instead I take the 15 bucks, because that seems to be how much food costs this day, these days, and I give that towards the Lenten appeal. Just ideas. Well, today then, I want to turn our attention towards prayer. Just as fasting and almsgiving are not really intended to be Lent-only disciplines, even more so is this true for prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. As one saint said, a Christian is simply one who prays. Just as you can hardly claim to have a relationship with any other person if you rarely or ever speak with him or her, so does our relationship with God rest upon daily, emphasis upon daily prayer and communication with him. Now, there are many different types of prayer. The most basic and common to Christians is our communal liturgical prayers on Sunday worship. The Mass is the greatest prayer offered by us and the church towards God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. From this great prayer that we're currently participating in this morning... It derives all the other types and varieties of prayer done by us, either personally or as families throughout the week. In other words, Sunday stands as the pinnacle, the starting point, and everything we do throughout the week draws strength from our communal prayer life as the body of Christ together. And so there's many types of prayers we do throughout our week that find kind of a source, a fountainhead, like a spring source, here in the Mass, we have, for example, there's prayers of confession of sin, where we enumerate our sins and God forgives us out of his great mercy. I hope we're confessing more than just on Sundays, because I have a feeling you're sinning more than just on Sundays. There are prayers and acts of adoration and worship. If you do morning and evening prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, you'll notice that most of the prayers 
are simply psalms, canticles, which is a fancy word for biblical song, that are offered back to God in a spirit of love and worship for who he is, creator, redeemer, sanctifier. There are prayers of thanksgiving. We are taught in the book of James that every good gift comes from our heavenly father. And so we should offer him ceaseless thanks. Now, as I've mentioned, the greatest prayer of thanksgiving, of course, is the Eucharist itself, which is just Eucharist is the Greek word for thanksgiving. In this service and act of thanksgiving, we offer God our gratitude for the most precious and glorious thing he has ever done for us, saving us by the once for all sacrifice of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But that same form of thanksgiving should, should pepper our week, should litter our every moments of praise, thanksgiving to God for all the many blessings he has given us. Now, on the other end of the spectrum from perhaps our corporate worship, there is the most private and intimate form of prayer, what is called contemplative prayer or prayer of the heart. Usually a person uh, in the history of the church, how this is practiced, a person finds a short verse of scripture or a one sentence prayer. And the most common one has become the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The person begins praying this over and over. Maybe you sit for five or ten minutes and you say it with your eyes shut over and over. Or you say it while you're driving down the road. Or you say it while you're in the line at the grocery store or at the bank. The goal is that you begin to put into your head and your heart an attention focusing on God his love, and his salvation. Now, many people throughout the tradition of the church have found that prayer ropes or beads or rosaries assist in this type of prayer. They give your bodies, your fingers, something to focus on while your heart and your mind can focus on the presence of God alone. For that is the goal of contemplative prayer, to simply rest in God's presence and to learn how to abide in that presence constantly. Remember that St. Paul says we are to pray without ceasing. How do you do that? Well, that's the end goal of contemplative prayer, that everywhere we go, we take God's presence with us because he's already there. Lent, then, is a time for us to dive deeply into all of these different types of prayer, for us to exercise our prayer muscles and strengthen our relationship with God. But there is, however... One more type of prayer that is, I would say, unique. All the other types of prayer I just mentioned focus upon pretty much us. Our worship of God, our relationship with him, our thanksgiving for what he's done in our lives, and our sins and our forgiveness. But this last type of prayer, which we'll call intercessory prayer, it's different. It is prayer for the sake of the other. And most often for the sake of those who do not even pray for themselves. This type of prayer, intercession, is central, I want, to, I want to suggest, central in our Lenten discipline because in intercessory prayer, we model and conform most to Jesus Christ himself, who came to this world, not for his sake, but for ours, who lived a perfect and sinless life, yet received the condemnation for our sins, who while dying on the cross prayed, not for himself, but for his executors. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so I want to suggest this morning that our gospel lesson that Father Ted just read for us gives us a map, as it were, 
for navigating intercessory prayer. We read that Jesus has gone into the, a Gentile region, the area surrounding the city of Tyre and Sidon. Now a Gentile woman has approached Jesus and is common in the Gospels, begins to cry out for his help. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Here we see intercessory prayer at work as this mother seeks divine aid for someone else, her sick and tormented child. Yet notice that the, there's a connection between her and her daughter. They are one before the Lord. She says, have mercy on me, my daughter is sick. Me, my daughter is sick. As we pray for ourselves, Jesus' prayer, or other forms of prayer that seem to focus on us, it is because we're intimately connected that it's also for the life of the other, for the life of the world. We're never detached from those for whom we pray. Now, what follows is actually pretty stark, yet it probably sounds familiar to many of us who have spent time earnestly praying for a loved one. Verse 23 reads, but he answered her, not a word. Nothing. Jesus was silent at this woman, literally standing next to him, pleading for his help. How often when we intercede in our own prayer life, does it feel like we are met with silence? As if God is ignoring us and our request. We read that the disciples next approach Jesus and ask him to send this woman away. Now, from what follows in the rest of the account, we shouldn't think that the disciples are saying, Jesus, will you just tell this woman to leave us alone? Send her away. She's getting on our nerves. Instead, they're saying something more like this. Jesus, please answer her request quickly. Heal her daughter. And let's all go our separate ways. We shouldn't be spending time with a Gentile woman. So we should see here that intercessory prayer is a communal activity. There is strength in numbers, mystically beyond our understanding, in prayer. We should be eager when it is appropriate to share our intercessions with those around us and ask them to join in beseeching God's favor. But when we feel all alone and that we are the only ones praying, we must remember that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, by angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. The disciples here in this account, they give us a picture of what we see in the book of Revelation, where the prayers of the saints rise up before God and where those already in heaven plead before God for the sake of those still on earth and say, how long, O Lord? I've heard it said, and it's worth repeating, while the Christian might pray privately, he never prays alone. The church triumphant in heaven prays with us. And the church militant, that is the church on earth, can pray with us as well. And so let us be bold to ask for the intercessions of all the saints, earthly and heavenly. There is strength in numbers. Now, as one would expect, Jesus does indeed respond to his disciples' intercessions. But his response is shocking, is it not? He tells them that he has been sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
And so this Gentile woman falls outside of his scope and mission. The woman doesn't give up, though. She comes even closer to Jesus. And we are told she actually worships him. In the midst of not hearing a response from Jesus or having her prayer answered, she doesn't choose to walk away or say, well, forget this, it doesn't work. She chooses to worship and adore Jesus even still. And all the while, she continues to make her simple request, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. What we learn here is the appropriate approach to intercessory prayer, and really to all prayer, persistence. This woman does not give up after just one request to Jesus. No, she goes deeper and further. She worships and asks again. Church, when we pray for others and even for needs in our own lives, we have to be persistent. Some of us have prayer requests that we've been taking to the Lord for years without any hint of an answer. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep asking. And most of all, keep worshiping. Even if your prayers are never answered this side of eternity, even if for some reason known only to God Almighty himself, he remains silent in the face of your request. He is still God. He is still King. He is still the Lord of creation. He is still worthy of your praise and adoration. And this Canaanite woman understands this. She knows that even if Jesus doesn't answer her prayer, he is still the Messiah and master of Israel. She knows that Jesus has the power to answer her request. I like what one commentator says about these verses. The lesson here is not that the more you scream, the more you'll likely get what you want. Nor is it the lie so often told that if you want something hard enough, you will get it. No, what is present here is a perception of the truth. The truth that what we want and all that is ever to be wanted is to be found in Jesus Christ. That, above all things, is what this passage teaches us this morning. Jesus is the goal, the answer, and the object of our prayer life. Even as we intercede for others, the end goal is not answered prayer, but simply more of his presence. The next bit of dialogue, if you're following along, is some of the strangest, in my opinion, in the entire set of Gospels. And it has to be interpreted carefully. Jesus finally speaks to this woman and says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And what many modern people see as a horribly racist or sexist comment, Jesus compares this woman to a dog because she lies outside the people of Israel. But I think modern man sees what he wants. Rather than being racist, the church fathers saw in this as well as in Jesus' silence towards the woman earlier in the text, a test for this woman. A test to see how faithful she really was. Remember, she began her pleas by calling Jesus the son of David. That is, a Gentile woman calls him Israel's Messiah. But the question is, does she really believe this? 
Does she really think that this itinerant preacher is the long-awaited savior of the world? Or does she think he's some sort of cheap magician that might be able to heal her daughter? Well, if she really thinks he is the Messiah, then she will agree that the Messiah comes first to Israel and then to the rest of the world. She, like household dogs, must be fed after the children have their fill. What is amazing is that she passes the test. What does she say? Truth, Lord. She agrees with Jesus that the Israelites are the children, that the, sorry, that the Israelites are the children and Gentiles are the dogs in the parable. Even still, her persistent remains, for she says to Jesus that even the dogs eat some of the crumbs that the kids drop at dinner time. If you've been around my kids, there's a lot of crumbs. It's here that we see the appropriate disposition and attitude of intercessory prayer. Bold humility. We are to be humble and accepting of the fact that even though we tend not to like it, we're not God. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has reasons for why and when and how he answers our requests. We can never treat him like a big Santa Claus in the sky and demand his actions and think that our prayers twist his arm into doing our bidding. That's paganism, not Christianity. We must come to him, recognizing that we are indeed sinners who deserve not grace, but judgment. At the same time, we should not come groveling and cowering before God. We're told in the book of Hebrews that we've been studying in our Sunday school hour that because of Christ and his sacrifice, we can come boldly before the throne of the heavenly grace through prayer. This woman models this perfectly. Humility towards Jesus and acceptance of her status in life but boldly interceding on behalf of her sick daughter. It's at this moment that Jesus lets on to what all this awkward silence and dialogue has been about. He exclaims, O woman, great is thy faith. And he heals her daughter. Faith, church, is the key to prayer, especially intercessory prayer. Jesus, through this passage, bids us to come to him boldly and humbly, trusting in his power and mercy and believing that he and he alone has the power to answer our prayers. Perhaps the Lord has not answered your intercessions because he also wants to test your faith and to call you deeper into a relationship with him first. May this woman, church, become for us a model a faithful intercession. May we make it a priority to cry out to the Lord on behalf of those around us, especially those that are vexed by the devil, which the Father saw as an allegory for one that does not believe in Jesus as Lord. To conclude, very quickly, I want to suggest three ways we practice intercession during Lent and beyond. First, pray through our parish prayer list on a regular basis. It's in the newsletter every week. Just pray it, at least weekly, if not daily. You can also grab a directory. Pray for every member of the church. We're not a big church. I do it most days. It takes about 45 seconds to name every name in the church before the Lord. 
Second, I would, I would commend you to use the litany in the Book of Common Prayer found on page 54. It's a beautiful list of petitions that really cover the entire scope of needs in the church and the world. Just pick one day a week, maybe Fridays. That's a good penitential day because that's the day our Lord died for the life of the world. And just commit to praying the litany. Again, if you go slow, it takes like 11 minutes. It's not very long. And then third, I would encourage you to begin the practice of actually writing down your own personal intercessions and prayer requests and praying them before the Lord and keeping a log. I know people who have done this. They'll write them down and then they'll come back and write a date next to when the Lord answers that prayer. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's decades. Sometimes they go to their grave with a blank next to that prayer request. But God is still worthy of our worship, still worthy of our praise. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that this Lent be a season amidst all the other disciplines and worship services, that it be a season where we accept the invitation of our Lord to become intercessors for the sake of others. In his good pleasure, he has deemed that our prayers and our requests should actually shape the world around us. May we not neglect so great a responsibility and honor. Instead, may we boldly approach his throne in all humility and with all faithfulness. And for the sake of others, cry, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Amen.